So this morning we are starting off a brand new series. It's called Practicing His Presence, Preparing Our Heart Soil for Spiritual Growth. Last week, uh, many of us were here celebrating Easter. And if you weren't here, I hope you're somewhere celebrating Easter. Um, The resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is the earth-shattering event that changes the course of history from death to life. And we are not just looking at that event going, that was a nice thing that happened a long time ago. But we're also going, okay, how does that impact our everyday life? How do we follow Jesus into the resurrection living? And uh, that's the journey of discipleship, which is what we're all about here at Victory Point. We're all about discipleship. And the word discipleship is actually really closely connected to the word discipline. You hear the same root there, discipline and discipleship. And so during the series, we're going to be asking ourselves, what does it look like as disciples to discipline ourselves so that we are focused on the life of Jesus. So we're actually living out the life of Jesus in our own lives in community. So we're not just kind of, kind of uh, wandering around in our lives, you know, kind of living however we want, but we're actually disciplining ourselves to live like Jesus in everything that we do. So I'm going to um, start us off with 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 9, verses 24 through 27. If you want to open up your Bibles to that, or if you have an app on your phone, be great. Um, But before we read that, let me uh, take a moment to pray. God, thank you that your word is living and active. Thank you that it's sharper than a two-edged sword and that it penetrates us. I pray, God, that as we open up your word, that you would convict our hearts, that you would challenge us, that you'd encourage us, that you would edify your church so that we might be people who reflect your word and who live it out in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. 1 Corinthians 9, verses 24 through 27. This is Paul writing to the Corinthians. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets a prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer just beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. Uh, This winter, one of my goals was to get faster at cycling. And I knew that wasn't going to happen by accident. So I got my trainer out, and I set up my bike, and I committed, okay, every single morning, I'm going to get, well, not every morning, but that was my goal. Every morning, (laughs) I was going to get up, and I was going to get on my bike, and uh, at first, I was really encouraged because I, I got faster and more fit at the beginning, especially that first couple of weeks. And then those, like, third or fourth weeks, this is, like, around January, it's cold outside, I want to be sleeping in, and I'm not seeing the immediate progress that I did at the first. You know, you kind of get that, those quick payoffs at first, and then it's a slower curve of learning and growth. And it just got really, really boring. Um, you're just, I'm just staring at a, at a cinder block wall in my basement, you know, with a puddle of sweat underneath me. You know what I'm talking about. And, uh, and I'm realizing, this is boring. And I stuck with it, but it was not exciting. 
And I just went out to California a couple weeks ago where my brother lives, and he brought his bike down, and we rode together. He is faster than me, but we actually got to ride together, and I kept up with him. So I'm very proud of myself that I actually did it. I kept up with my brother, and um, I, I think I beat him on one hill, which I was really excited about because he usually beats me at everything. But it took a lot of, of time in my basement training. Very boring, just day after day training, a little bit at a time. Todd, you just ran, you just uh, not ran, you rode your bike yesterday in a race. And I'm guessing you didn't just, you know, that wasn't your first ride of the year. How many miles have you put in this year? 1,700 miles. Okay, Todd has ridden 1,700 miles, and then yesterday he did a 10-mile race. And uh, he got ninth in his uh, age category. So way to go, Todd. But that was, that was a lot of hard work. Yeah, let's applaud for Todd. That was a lot of hard work he put in. So it wasn't an accident that he placed. It, it was a result of strict training that he had. That he, Day after day, he's, he's in the saddle. He's always on his bike. And maybe you have been training for something, or maybe you've done that in the past, whether it's uh, dieting or whether it's exercise or even things like gardening or housework, any kind of goal that you have. A lot of times, it's not something you can just achieve by random. You have to actually apply yourself to, to discipline your life to train so that you can improve and you can accomplish your goal. Um, I love this, uh, this phrase by Gary Player. He's a golf, golf player. It says, the harder I practice, the luckier I get. <laughs> I really like that phrase. The harder I practice, the luckier I get. And I think there's a misconception in spiritual growth. And uh, especially when we talk about things like uh, supernatural things like miracles or answers to prayer, that spiritual growth or breakthrough moments happen just randomly, that they just happen randomly to people, um, which can happen. But I think we overemphasize that aspect of it, and we overlook the fact that um, a lot of the spiritual life that we live is actually hard-fought discipline that we engage in for the sake of following Jesus consistently. If you look at the life of Jesus, we look and see that uh, he preaches in Luke 4, that amazing sermon where he says, you know, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach the good news to the poor. And he gives this sermon in the synagogue in his hometown. But we overlook the fact that everybody in the synagogue would have had a turn to preach. And that was Jesus' turn. Everyone was assigned a certain Sabbath that they were going to be preaching from the Word. And Jesus' turn came. He received the scroll. They opened up to Isaiah. That was his passage for the morning. It was not a random event. He had been disciplining himself for years to share out of the Scriptures. And so had everyone in that in that uh, synagogue, they would have, uh, that would have been part of their spiritual practices, their spiritual disciplines, that week in after week out, somebody would be sharing from Scripture how it had been applying to their life. And so when you see the event in Luke 4, it seems like a random sermon, that he comes in, gets a word from the Lord, and preaches, which is true, but it was also part of his practice. We see Peter and John, after the resurrection, in Acts chapter 3, they're walking up to the temple, and they see a crippled man who looks to them for money. He asks them for something, and they say, silver and gold have I none, but what I have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ. Get up and walk. And he gets up, and he's healed. And everyone's amazed because God broke through. The kingdom of God broke through. But then you see in the, if you look before that story and after that story, you see that it was their practice to go up to the temple every single day. They'd be going up to the temple so they would be walking past this, this staircase, and it said that this man was routinely brought to that staircase to ask for money. 
There is no way that was the first time they had encountered this man. And it said he, the man expected to get something from them. You go, well, is that because maybe Peter and John had given them something in the past? Maybe they had prayed for him in the past. Maybe they had given him money. Jesus taught them to give money to the poor. And then after the story, you see all the crowd recognizes this man as the crippled who was on the stairs. There's no way that the disciples who were part of that community did not recognize this man. So we see this event as this breakthrough moment, which it is. But it's not just a breakthrough moment. It's also after having lots of practice of going up the temple steps. That was part of their discipline of going to temple every day. Most days it was probably very boring, but they engaged it because that's what it means to discipline our lives after Jesus. In Acts 10, Peter is on the rooftop of a house and he receives a vision of the gospel coming to the Gentiles. But what we don't see is that that time in the day is a specific time that he would have always been on the rooftop. Every single day he'd been on, he would have gone to a rooftop or somewhere, um, solitude, some place of solitude where he could pray. And so this was just another one of those days, and he was hungry, and he, he went into a trance, and he got a vision from God. But that was only after many, many days of having no vision and just engaging in prayer, normal, everyday life discipleship. So there's a relationship between the disciplined life and the breakthrough life. There's a relationship between the um, organized parts of our lives and the organic breakthroughs of God's kingdom. That the, the organized parts of our lives prepare space. They prepare our heart soil to receive God's breakthrough when it comes. But we don't engage it just for the breakthrough. We, we engage it because God commands us to. Because he wants to keep our hearts in line with his truth. Our practices, our daily practices, reveal our heart's direction. So my question this morning to start us off, if we were to look at our calendar, if we were to look at our bank reports or our checkbooks, if we were to look at our thought life, what, go, what thoughts we've been thinking, if we were to look at the books we've been reading and the podcasts we've been listening to, if we were to look at our relationships and our conversations, what would these things tell us about what we value most? What would these things tell us about what we actually worship in our lives? Because I really do think that discipleship and discipline has to do with worship, who we are worshiping with our everyday lives. So why do we train spiritually? Why do we, why do we discipline our lives? It's because, in, in Paul's words, uh, we don't want to be disqualified. He goes on in 1 Corinthians, uh, if you read on through, um, through 1 Corinthians 9 into 1 Corinthians 10, he goes on to talk about why it's important that we train our bodies, that we discipline ourselves. He says this, For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud that they had all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the same spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Why? These things occurred as an example to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. 
as I've been preparing for this message and this whole series, I'm realizing that we can't begin to talk about spiritual disciplines without talking about idolatry, which is something we don't typically talk about (laughs) because it's so strange. What's so appealing about idols? But it seems to be really important. The New Testament talks about it all the time. See, in 1 John, uh, at the end of the letter, he talks all about love and grace, and he's encouraging the churches in 1 John. And then at the, the very last verse, 1 John 5, 21, he says, My children, guard yourselves from idols. The end. <laughs> he, doesn't, he doesn't end it with some like uh, rosy thing about, I hope you're well, you know, blessings in Christ. He just says, guard yourselves from idol." period. In Colossians 3, 5 through 6, it says, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. So it's obviously important to the New Testament writers that we be careful of idols. But, I mean, seriously, what? these are ancient idols. What, what's the appeal of these idols? That's what I was kind of curious by. Like, what, what was it about these things that drew people away that were so appealing? So I did some research on it. Um, Doug Stewart has a commentary on, that talks about idolatry. And here's what he uncovers about uh, idolatry in the ancient world. Idolatry was normal. Everyone did it. This is how people got pregnant. This is how crop grew, crops grew. This is how armies conquered. Um, there was an idol for everything. And it was very normal. Just like uh, apps on your phone. There's an, there's an app for everything. Well, there's an, there was an idol for everything. And it's how you got things done. If you wanted to get pregnant, you had an idol and you gave a sacrifice to that idol. And that was kind of the normal thing to do. Uh, secondly, secondly, idolatry was instantly gratifying. Meaning, if I, just give, if I just give an offering to the idol, I get something in return. I scratch your back, you scratch mine. If you carve a god out of wood or stone, that god would enter the icon immediately. And now you have a god in your midst. You have a god that you can take with you anywhere. It's, it's, uh, it's readily available. Uh, you can get this god's attention quickly. In addition, if you scratch... Uh, sorry, if they need food and sacrifices, you need blessings... And you'll, you'll be able to get them to do whatever you want. Idolatry was also really convenient. So ancient idolatry encouraged vain religious activity, he says. So basically, you can do whatever you like with your life. All you have to do is give, a, give an offering to the idol, and you can kind of go about your life and not have to change anything. Um, as long as you just consistently show up with sacrifices, you'll be fine. And they, they were always accessible, so they're convenient. You could take them wherever you want, and you could always have access to idols. So idols in the ancient world have kind of disappeared, but um, the New Testament writers continue to talk about idols. And my question is, do we have idols today? Um, John Calvin says this about idols. Uh, Man's nature, so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols. Meaning, it's not a matter of what the thing is, whether it's a piece of stone or wood or a golden calf or whatever it is. It's about our hearts. It's that human nature is a worshiping, humans are worshiping things. 
We, we, are, we are drawn by, we are defined by the things that we love. John Piper says this, an idol is anything loved more than God. And I actually think it's a little bit more, um, a little bit more specific than that. I think it's actually a little bit more dangerous than that. Because it can be easy to think idols, okay, I don't have any of those in my life. But think about it this way. If idols in the ancient world were normal, convenient, and instantly gratifying things, then idols today are normal, convenient, gratifying distractions that suddenly or gradually shift our heart's attention away from God. If you define it that way, it can really be almost anything. So for us, it could be money, our desire for money and what we'll do to get more money. Or it could be our careers or our families. Um, Something called moralistic therapeutic deism, which is kind of a a mutation of Christianity that makes um, an idol out of our holy God to turn them into a slot machine, basically. If I can just use God to make me feel better. Um, or, Or liberalism or conservatism political stances, or clothes and possessions, uh, people, relationships, public figures, or celebrities. These can all be idols if they distract us, if they distract our heart's attention away from God. But the main thing I want to talk about, well, one of the instances I want to talk about this morning is the internet. That's another idol. Um, I've been reading a book called The Shallows by uh, Nicholas Carr. And he talks about the way the internet is changing our brains, literally, through neuroplasticity. Our brains are always changing and learning and adapting to their context. And that's how God designed them. And it's a good thing. But when we create the internet, um, our brains start to um, learn to uh, digest information and interact with our context the way the internet does. And so this is how he describes it. What the internet seems to be doing is chipping away my capacity for concentration and contemplation. Whether I'm online or not, my mind now expects to take information in the way the net distributes it in a swiftly moving stream of particles. Once I was scuba diver, I was a scuba diver in the sea of words. Now I skip along the surface like a guy in a jet ski. <laughs> That's a great image. Have any of you experienced this? Like now that I am on my phone, internet's on my phone or on my computer, I'll sit down and read a book, and I can't get past a couple of sentences before my brain starts going somewhere else, or my attention starts, I think, oh, I'm hungry, or I need to call somebody, or I need to text somebody, or I'll be watching a TV show, and I feel like I need to check my phone, or something like that. Does anyone have this? Yes? Please, uh, please raise your hand to make me feel like I don't, I'm not alone here. Thank you. <laughs> so that is not an accident. This is because the way we use technology shapes the way we think. And it's literally changing the structure of our brains to be shallow thinkers. That I can think quick and I can think, uh, I can multitask easier, but I can't think deeply as I used to. And that's a big, big problem. Not only when it comes to my ability to learn and to study, it's harder, but also in my ability to engage in relationships and all of our abilities to gain relationships, that we become uh, addicted to instant gratification like we are on the web. And when it comes to my attention and focus to people, it's being being, uh, depleted day after day as I continue to engage with 
with internet, with smartphone, with my computer, it's actually changing the way my brain thinks and interacts with my contacts. Um, medieval Bishop Isaac of Syria described um, this about reading because um, what Nicholas Carr in The Shallows suggests is like, read a book. <laughs> read a book. And um, I'd suggest in, the, in our time today, don't just read any book. Read scripture. That's the main thing I want to introduce to us today. The first spiritual practice that I want to go over in our whole series of spiritual practices is read scripture. This is what Bishop Isaac Syria described uh, when he talked about uh, reading to himself. As in a dream, I enter a state when my sense and thoughts are concentrated. Then with prolonging of this silence and the turmoil of my memories is still to my heart. Ceaseless waves of joy are sent me by inner thoughts beyond expectation, suddenly arising to delight my heart. Isn't that beautiful language to describe what it's like to read? And uh, I think any of us who've, who like to read, who, who pick up a novel and just devour it, can understand that, that feeling of just getting enraptured in a book, the feeling of just being lost in a world. And that's what Nicholas Carr is saying is literally healing for our brains. But then we take it into a spiritual sense that where does Scripture fit in our lives? Or are we just skimming through? Are we just skimming through our lives, just waiting for the next hit of, a, of you know, an inspirational quote or a song on the radio or whatever it is? Or are we actually diving into Scripture? So that's my question for us this morning. What is the role of Scripture in your life? And where is the role of idols, too? Israelites weren't totally lost to idols. They weren't, not every... Every uh, king or every chapter in Israelites' history was about idolatry, but a lot of it was. I want to take us to a story um, in Second Chronicles, um, but first let me set a stage. You've got um, the Israelites who have gone from the desert into the Promised Land, and now they've uh, begun uh, having kings rule over them. Kings are ruling over them, and it's really depressing reading through Chronicles. Because it feels like almost every king, it says, this king came, they ruled for this long, and they did evil in the sight of the Lord. And they set up all these idols, and they worshipped foreign gods, and then God killed them. And then you have the next king, who did evil in the sight of the Lord, and set up idols, and their reign came to an end. God killed them. But then you have these little brief moments where you see just a couple of kings who did righteous acts in the sight of the Lord, like Hezekiah comes along, and he did, he did righteous things in the sight of the Lord. He, he was righteous, and he demolished the idols. Anytime the king did righteous things, it was always connected with demolishing idols. He demolished the idols, and um, he began to practice the word of the Lord. But then his son, Manasseh, fell into idolatry and did evil in the sight of the Lord. And then his son, Amon, fell into idolatry and did evil in the sight of the Lord. And then Amon's son is Josiah. And that's where we pick up the story. Josiah comes, and it says Josiah was righteous in the eyes of the Lord. Even He started off as king when he was eight, and I think when he was about 22, that's when he turned his heart to the Lord. And he began reforming uh, the whole land and saying, we need to turn back to the Lord. And so what he does is he says, we've got to repair the temple. The temple has fallen into disrepair because all these other idol worshippers have neglected it and set up foreign gods in the temple. We've got to fix the temple. So 
he uh, he goes to his um, he goes to his um, secretary. She, uh, what is the secretary's name? Shefa, Shefan, Shefan is the secretary, and he goes to the secretary and says, um, Shefan, can you go tell the high priest Hilkiah is the high priest's name? Can you go tell the high priest Hilkiah to go back into the the vaults of the temple and find a bunch of money and pull it out to pay workers to fix up the temple. And he says yes. So Shaphan goes to Hilkiah, and Hilkiah begins to search in the uh, temple treasury for uh, all the gold and the silver and all the money to pay the workers. And here's where we pick up the story. In Second Chronicles 34, 14 through 21, it says this. While they were bringing out the money that had been taken into the temple of the Lord, Hilkiah the priest found the book of the law of the Lord that had been given through Moses. So I'm imagining he's going through looking for money somewhere, and he stumbles upon this dusty old scroll. He goes, what the heck is this? We, they haven't read scripture in generations. People haven't seen the book of the law in generations, so this would be very foreign to him. He picks it up, and it's all dusty. And uh, Hilkiah said to Shaphan, the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the temple of the Lord. He gave it to Shaphan. And the book of the law he's talking about is uh, the book of Deuteronomy. Then Shaphan took the book to the king, King Josiah, and reported to him, Your officials are doing everything that has been committed to them. They have paid out the money that was in the temple of the Lord and have entrusted it to the supervisors and workers. Basically, I did what you asked me to do, but here's something else. Then Shaphan, the secretary, informed the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read from it in the presence of the king. When the king heard the words of the law, he tore his robes. He gave these orders to Hilkiah, Ahikam, son of Shaphan, Abdon, son of Micah, Shaphan, the secretary, and Isaiah, the king's attendant. Go and inquire of the Lord for me and for the remnant in Israel and Judah about what is written in this book that has been found. Great is the Lord's anger that is poured out on us because of those who have gone before us have not kept the word of the Lord. They have not acted in accordance with what is written in this book. And then from there on, what Josiah does is he begins tearing down all the idols in the land. And there's lots of them. <laughs> and I, I was kind of wondering as he's doing this, is he upsetting people? Are these on, is this on private property? I mean, if you had uh, an idol that you were praying to for crops and then your king comes and destroys it, I'd be pretty ticked off. Like, hey, that's my idol you're ruining. You didn't ask my permission. Comes in and destroys it. He probably upset a lot of people. Um, But from there on, he begins to um, reform the land, and he takes away uh, the idols. Um, And so I want to talk about what Josiah is doing here, and then we're going to figure out how we can learn from Josiah in in the ways that he um, reformed um, his, in his reign. First of all, Josiah had wisdom. Um, in the beginning of Deuteronomy, it talks about how he did not turn to the right or to the left, how he fixed his eyes on the Lord. Um, so Josiah sought God's wisdom, and the first thing he did was he fixed the temple, which had fallen into disrepair during his father's time of idolatry. While he was fixing the temple, he encountered the law. He found the law. He rediscovered the scriptures. And he let it shape him 
he, he, he didn't interpret the scriptures for his own benefit. He actually let the scriptures um, shape him and shape his thoughts. Hebrews 4.12 says this, For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. And so when Josiah opened up the scriptures and it was read to him, he was cut to the heart. He tore his robes. He gave scripture authority over his life. And he began to bring order into his life and into his rule out of that. So he began destroying idols, like I was talking about. But he didn't just destroy idols. He also began initiating the Passover. He began celebrating differently. So you see in Second Chronicles thirty-five eighteen. It says, the Passover had not been observed like this in Israel since the days of the prophet Samuel. And none of the kings of Israel had ever celebrated such a Passover as did Josiah with the priests, the Levites, and all Judah and Israel who were there with the people of Jerusalem. So he didn't just make this a private reading of Scripture. He actually changed his life and then began to read Scripture publicly. And he began to um, destroy the idols and then set up festivals, practices of worship for himself and for his community. And when he did that, he left a legacy. He left a legacy. He was respected by Jeremiah, Prophet Jeremiah. Prophet Jeremiah, who was very critical of kings, actually held Josiah in really high regard. And he was one of the few who did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And the same promise is for all of us who put our lives under God's authority. Hebrews 12, 11 says this, No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. That the spiritual disciplines we engage in, the practices of spirituality in our lives that we commit ourselves to, may seem boring or painful or uncomfortable at the time. It might be, uh, you know, disappointing other people. It might be uh, changing norms or expectations. We might be upsetting the status quo. But we have hope that what's happening is that over time, it's producing a harvest of righteousness in us, a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. <clears throat> my uh, notes are disappearing. <laughs> All right, here we go. Um, so my question for us is, how do we pattern ourselves after uh, Josiah's example? This is what Josiah did. He repaired the temple, he discovered the scriptures, and he reformed his patterns. So what does it look like for us, first and foremost, to repair our temple? What I mean is, what does it look like for us to restore a place in our lives of encountering with God? A, a time, a space of regular communion with God. Where is that in our lives? Is it a chair? Is it a window you stand in front of? Is it a trail you go on a walk on? Is it, um, is it uh, in the morning? Is it at night? Is it during your break at work? How long is it? Is it 5, 10, 15 minutes? What does it look like for you to commune with God? What are your regular patterns of interaction with the presence of God? Not to say that God doesn't, you know, interject throughout our week and throughout our day and surprise us, but where are those regular times of connection with God for you? What does it look like to restore that temple? Not that the temple is something that we literally set up, but the scriptures say that um, our bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit. So to become aware of how am I, how am I in encountering God in my life regularly? Josiah repaired the temple, and when he repaired the temple, he discovered the scriptures. 
So what does it look like for us in that space to either rediscover or discover the scriptures for the first time? Um, Josiah, when he engages the scriptures, they, they kind of uh, overpower him and they change the way he thinks. In John 15, it says, Jesus says, you are already clean because of the words I've spoken to you. You are pruned. Basically, the, the word of God comes and it prunes our lives. It cleans our lives. It, it brings us into accountability. It sheds light on our lives. What does it look like for us to uncover the scriptures? So maybe you're already doing that. Maybe you have a practice of engaging the scriptures, and it's, sometimes it's boring, sometimes it's engaging, sometimes you're discovering stuff and learning stuff, sometimes you're confused by things, but you're steadily and regularly, consistently engaging with scripture. Praise God. For a lot of us, it's something that we do, and maybe we do begrudgingly. We dread it, or we avoid it. Um, others of us are doing it, but it just feels really, really boring every single time. Um, and others of us don't have a regular practice of engaging with Scripture, and maybe we desire that this morning. Uh, as a staff, we have kind of created some patterns around engaging with Scripture um, as holding ourselves accountable to God's Word. Um, every day the office is open, Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday at 2 o'clock, we open up Scripture, and we talk about what stands out to us, what confuses us, what we're surprised by, we're talking about what what God is teaching us about himself, about ourselves. And then we pray for each other. We pray for each other. So that's something we do regularly. If you want to join in on that, I strongly encourage you, come join us. If you have two, two o'clock open during the day, you're welcome to come join us in this room over here and uh, read scripture with us and pray with us. Um, I was talking with a couple last week who, who they pray uh, twice a day. They wake up in the morning, they read a short scripture, and they pray together. And then at night, they read a short scripture and they pray together. They have a regular pattern of engaging scripture. Um, and then for me, um, I, my practice of engaging scripture is in the morning. And uh, it's in the morning because if I, for me, if I wait till the end of the day, I'm tired, I have other things on my mind. And for me, uh, I, can, I can count on, uh, if I wake up before everyone else does, I know that that's going to be time that I can focus and engage on the most important thing to me. Um, so I, I go and I, I have a special spot that I sit in and I pull out my Bible. Um, I look up, um, scripture passages, which, which I'll talk to in a second, but I pull out a physical Bible because, uh, this is set apart. This is holy means set apart. Holy Bible means set apart, meaning it's only for one thing, encountering God through the scriptures. And so I have a physical Bible that I pull out and then I have my phone that I look up the scripture passages of the day and I have a reading plan. I have an Old Testament reading, I have a psalm, I have a New Testament, and a gospel. And the reason I do that is because, um, first of all, it's good for me to have a, a, a wide span of the narrative of Scripture. And I encourage that to you. If you're only reading the New Testament, also try to figure out some things in the Old Testament to read because they balance each other out and they help shed light on one another. Um, and then the other reason I, I do a reading plan is because it forces me to read Scriptures that make me uncomfortable. If I choose the reading plan, it's probably going to be something, if I choose a scripture, it's probably going to be something that feels really comforting and encouraging to me, which is nice, but I encourage you to have some kind of reading plan that brings you in front of scriptures that actually challenge the way you think, and that might be confusing or might leave you some questions you can't answer, that might bring some conflict to your beliefs, and that's actually a really, really healthy thing that we end up coming out of our scriptural time with some questions and some things to talk with other people about or 
some curiosity, some things to pray about. That's healthy for me. Um, so I use a lectionary and I read the Bible um, daily. And then I go, I ask some questions of Scripture. And um, maybe if you're feeling bored or if a Scripture feels tired of you, ask, what, what lights up in this passage for me? What am I drawn to? Or what bothers me about this passage? What questions do I have about this passage? What is this passage teaching about God? What is this passage teaching about people? Um, one, one question I love asking myself is, how would my neighbor read this passage? Or how would someone around the world read this passage? Especially if it's a familiar passage that I'm thinking, I know this, it's very familiar, nothing's standing out to me. Well, how would it stand out to your neighbor? How would it stand out with someone else? Or maybe bring it in front of someone else and read it with somebody else and see what questions they might have. And then once I finish reading the scriptures, I usually um, kind of write down some of, some of the things that I was paying attention to or noticing. And then, um, and then I begin to form my prayers out of that. So it can be easy to kind of fall into a rut of prayers like, Dear God, thank you for the blessing of this day. Pray that everything I do would be used to your glory. That's a great, those are great prayers. But what would it look like if we read a psalm of lament that morning to form my prayers uh, out of the scriptures? Go, okay, God, what, what do I have to lament today? Or if I read a scripture about idolatry, like we're talking about this morning, God, what idols do you have in my life, and how can I lay those down before you in prayer? To let our prayers be shaped by the scriptures. And um, I, I try to engage this every day, but I also hold this loosely, this practice, because I don't want this to become an idol of itself. And sometimes um, I get interruptions. I'm a dad, I have two girls, and sometimes they wake up much earlier than they're supposed to. <laughs> and they'll come down and they'll sit in my lap, and um, do I go, no, go back up to your room, I'm in the middle of my scripture time. No, I, I welcome them in, and, and I say, yeah, I'm reading the Bible. And sometimes they'll say, what are you reading? Or can I read some, or you read it to me? Sometimes they go, can we play? And I go, okay, I'm going to set this aside. And trust that this is God's time, and he's, he's leading me into this um, time now. And this is what my devotional time ends up being. So I hold it loosely. This is just my practice, okay? You guys could, I mean, you who have done this for a long time could probably get up here and talk about your practices. And there's no right way to do this. I'm just, if you don't have a way to engage scriptures, I just wanted to provide an example of how um, I do it and why. So um, we discover, we repair the temple, Rediscover that time and space in your life where you can engage with God consistently. We discover the scriptures, rediscover the scriptures, and let them speak into our lives. And the last thing is to reform our patterns, to change the way we actually live. <laughs> I mean, that's what uh, James says, right? To not just look at the word and, and then just go about your business, but to actually obey, obey the word of God, and to, to change our lives according. That's what discipleship is, is learning to hear from God, what is God saying, and what am I going to do about it? And so during this series, I encourage you um, to engage with this series. To, uh, we're going to be talking, today we're talking about scripture. Uh, next week we're going to talk about giving. And then we're going to talk about uh, suffering. We're going to talk about celebration. We're going to talk about um, service and secrecy, which is a really interesting one I can't wait to talk about. We're going to talk about abiding. And then we're going to talk about um, prayer and the Holy Spirit. So I encourage you to continue in this journey with us as we talk about the spiritual disciplines, the practices in our lives that are preparing heart soil so that um, we can be people who actually bear the fruit of God. So if you imagine a garden, I'm a, I'm a gardener, and um, right now my 
garden is all, it's, got, it's bare, it's got some mulch on top of it, and I'm getting ready to plant. But I'm not just um, planting randomly, I'm going to, this time I'm going to plant in straight rows. Last year I just kind of like scattered everything all over the place, and it was really hard to notice where the re- weeds were and actually keep it a clean, productive garden. So this year I'm going to line them up in nice rows, and I'm going to make sure that there's plenty of mulch, I'm going to make sure that I get my weed whacker in there and then cut down the weeds, which actually works as great uh, green compost too. But I'm doing that because I want my garden to be well-tended so that it can produce good fruit. And so in the same way, we, we want to pay attention to our lives to make sure that we are living disciplined lives that actually um, orient ourselves towards the things we want to orient them towards, that the most important things in our lives are being prioritized. It's boring sometimes, it's exciting sometimes, but it prepares opportunities for breakthrough, and it also prepares our hearts to bear good fruit so that at the end of the day, we end up being people who are bearing the fruit of God in our lives to share with others. That there's actually something good to share with our neighbors that's growing in our lives, that's not overcome by weeds or choked out. or um, it's, We're actually producing good fruit in our lives. So I want to invite um, the band up. Um, I thought we'd end our, our time together, uh, our, the sermon, talking about... Um, I just want to remind us of the, of the song, Come Thou Fount every blessing. might be a familiar tune to a lot of us, but um, there's the last verse um, illustrates a lot of what um, disciplines, uh, what it looks like to live a disciplined life. It says, O to grace, how great a debtor, daily I'm constrained to be. Let that grace now, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. I hear the image of being bound, being bound to, to God, to God's law, to God's word, to God's grace. Willingly, binding ourselves, binding our wandering heart that's prone to to wander, to idols, to other distractions, to the immediate gratification, to the convenient things, to what everyone else in our lives are doing, to actually bind our hearts to Christ's. It says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord. Take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Let's... um. Why don't we stand and let's sing that last verse.